right, good morning. Good, oh, is it morning? Yes, it's still morning. Good to see you. Good to see you all. Um, I hope you've had a good week. Uh, it's the last week of summer for a lot of us. Um, a lot of our kids are going back to school. Some of us are going back to work. And I'm sure we're all, well, I hope, I, you know, I hope we're you know, looking forward to it. Um, <laughs> um, but I hope, you had, you know, I hope you had a good summer. Um, the sun has been scarce this summer. And I feel like now apparently it's coming out. Apparently it's going to be a heat wave. But even so, I hope you had a good summer. I had a good summer this, this summer. Um, one of the highlights of my summer was my sister was getting married. Well, she got married. Um, uh, well, yeah, she got married. And I'm from Ghana. And because I'm from Ghana, we have two weddings, not one, right? So you have the, the Ghanaian traditional wedding, and then you have the kind of white church wedding. And the traditional wedding is called the knocking, or knocking on the door, right? And the, and the idea behind it is that a man sees a woman that he likes and he wants to marry, but it's not like in the West where you start dating and all that kind of stuff. You've got to, you've got to include the family, right? So the families have to go through a process where they sit down and they discuss and they go through a protocol because it's not just the two individuals getting married, uh, it's the two families getting married. And so it's like when you, when you go to this kind of ceremony, it's a bit like a role play. Um, the man comes with his family to the door and they come bearing gifts and then they, they knock on the door. The bride's family invites them in. Then a spokesman speaks for the man and makes his intentions known to the family. So he's making it clear, I've come to, to take one of your, your flowers, as they call it. And at this point, the, 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 the woman isn't in the room. She's elsewhere. But the man you know, shows the family all the gifts, and the family are happy. And or, or if the family are happy, they're not always happy. But if the family are happy and satisfied with the gifts, then it gets to that all-important moment when the bride comes in. <laughs> and then as the bride comes in, she's veiled, right? She's veiled. But she's not alone. There are two other women, or two or three other women, that come in with her. And the other women are veiled exactly as she is veiled. <laughs> exactly. So the man has to identify and make it known to all which is the bride that he is coming to or he's coming for. The man goes to the first woman and he unveils her. It looks like his bride. It could be his bride, but it's not his bride. The man, the man goes to the second woman. He unveils her. It could be his bride. It looks like his bride, but alas, it's not his bride. And then he comes to the third woman and he unveils her and you see her in all of her bridal glory. She's unmatched. She's unique. She stands apart from the rest. And he says, this is the one that I came for, my chosen one. And in some way, uh, this kind of process mirrors what happens in our text today. We're going to be in Luke 9 uh, from verses 1 to 36. I'm going to read and I'll pray, and then hopefully I'll say something uh, helpful. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you a second to turn there. Luke 9, verses 1 to 36.
I'm reading in the ESV, by the way. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John, the Bap- that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town, in, a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provision, for we are here in a desolate place. <clears throat> but he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go, out, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and James and John and went up, the mountain, went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, 
the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you'd be with us and draw near to us as we hear your word. May we take in your word by faith. Uh, Would you draw us closer to yourself? Would you encourage us and set our heart's desire upon you, we pray. Amen. Amen. Right, so long passage, as is usual for us. Um, But there are five scenes for us to walk through. Uh, The first three are that Jesus sends out his 12 disciples. Herod hears about Jesus and is confused by him. And Jesus feeds the 5,000. And these these scenes show us uh, that Jesus' movement is growing. And it's clear that Jesus is viewed as another prophet, another amazing prophet. But then Luke gives us two more scenes. The first, Jesus is alone with his disciples and Peter makes his confession. And the second is that Jesus is transfigured. He unveils himself and shows us that he is so much more than just another prophet. So I want to walk through those step by step. And as I go through it, um, I'm going to be using the word prophet a lot, right? And prophet, for those of us who don't know, is someone who speaks God's message or God's word in God's name by God's authority. So someone who speaks God's message in God's name by God's authority. They receive a message. It could be a dream, a vision, a voice from God. And they proclaim that message and sometimes perform miracles or supernatural acts to confirm that message, right? And so essentially, a prophet is a a channel of communication between the human world and the divine world, right? So that's what a prophet is if you're unsure. So in verse 1 to 6, Jesus, he's he's began his ministry, um, yet his time is short, uh, we, 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 know, we know that he began his ministry at 30, it ends at 33, and so his time is short, and there's no internet, and he needs to spread his message to all of Israel. Uh, and one thing we forget about Jesus is that he is, uh, as amazing as he was, he, is, he, 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 he was just another man, right? He was just one man. He gets exhausted. Uh, he walks from town to town. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't drive. He didn't have cars at the time. He walks from town to town, preaching and teaching from morning to evening. Uh, his job was physically draining, uh, but it's also spiritually and emotionally draining. You know, when, when, he, when he's confronted with the crowds, he witnesses uh, people. He witnesses children possessed by demons, screaming and convulsing. He deals with 
uh, people who have died. He deals with people with serious illnesses. He deals with people who smell, right? And I mean, you know, if you look at our GPs and our NHS system, everyone's talking about the NHS is in crisis, the A&Es are flooded with people, the hospital wards are flooded with people. Imagine all those people waiting there on the waiting lists at your door expecting you to heal them. Hundreds and thousands of people waiting for you to, to do something for them. That is what Jesus experiences. And so his ministry is, is incredibly demanding and his time is limited and his, messages, and his message needs to spread. And so he sends out his 12 disciples on a missions trip and he gives them his power and his authority to do what he does but in other places. Right? So, in, so in one sense they are like Jesus but in different places. He, he, he wants them to, to cure diseases, to cast out demons, to preach God's kingdom. And Jesus shows us the nature of gospel ministry. Right? Jesus' ministry is a ministry of word and deed. It's not one or the other, it's both. Right? It's both a proclamation of hope, but it's also a demonstration of compassion. And we can't have one without the other. Right? If we have word only, we will create a school of dead people because the hungry won't live long enough to hear what we're saying to them. But if we are deed only, then we will educate and feed and heal people on their way to hell. And so a ministry like Jesus, by necessity, needs both. It needs compassion and it needs proclamation. The power of the kingdom of God is not without genuine human concern. Yet it's not without true, a true message or true doctrine from God for the soul. So Jesus shows us the nature of gospel ministry, but he also shows us the source of gospel ministry. Right? In those times, you would have other practitioners of religion who would take around with them a begging bag, and they'd go from house to house expecting people to, to feed them and to take care of them, and they wouldn't stay in one place. They would go from one house and say thanks, and then go to another house and, 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 and kind of get food and provision, and then say thanks and go to another one. And they would use their spiritual power to exploit people. But Jesus says that the disciples, their ministry in his name is not going to be like that. It's going to rely completely on Jesus as their source. And so the, 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 the power and authority in which they go is in Jesus' power and authority. And from verse 3, uh, he basically says, don't pack. Right? I'm not sure many of us could imagine going on a holiday without packing. Um, but Jesus says, don't take a walking stick. Uh, again, they would go on very long walks. Don't take a walking stick. Don't take food. Don't take money. Don't plan where you're going to stay. Don't even take a change of clothes, right? When it says don't take a, um, two tunics, that would be a change of clothes. And some of you are thinking, oh, yeah, I'm not sure about that ministry of Jesus. I haven't got clothes. I, haven't got <laughs> I like my clothes. But his point is that God will go before you and will completely supply all of your needs. And those who, are, who, who accept your message will take you into their homes and all your needs are going to be supplied. And the action of shaking the dust off your feet is a sign that as the apostles have gone in the authority of Jesus, whoever rejects them rejects Jesus 
and you know, cuts themselves off from the kingdom. So as the dust falls off the feet of the disciples, the people who reject Jesus, they fall off his kingdom, as it were. And so having sent them out, Jesus' movement is, is it's spreading. It's, it's doing what Jesus wants it to do. It's getting all across Israel. It's attracting attention. And the attention it attracts isn't just, from, isn't just on a street level where there's whisperings. But in verse 9 to 7, we get this interlude that shows us that word of this movement has reached even the highest classes in society. So Herod, who is the Tetrarch, he's the ruler of Israel at that time, under the Romans, has been hearing rumors about Jesus and he's confused. And I suggest that these verses are crucial to this passage uh, because it introduces to us a central question. That is, who is Jesus? It confronts us with the fact that there are many opinions and views about Jesus, what he's doing and who he is. But who is he really? And these opinions revolve around the idea that Jesus is a prophet, right? So some think he's John the Baptist raised from the dead, uh, who Herod just beheaded. And so, you know, Herod would be quite worried if John the Baptist comes from the dead. I'm not sure you want to see someone that you just beheaded. Some think Jesus is Elijah, right, who is a major prophet from the Old Testament. Come back. Others think he's some other prophet from the Old Testament, again, raised from the dead, they don't think he's some kind of new prophet. They think he's an old one. But is that description of Jesus as a prophet, is that most fundamentally who he is? That's the question that we, we have to answer. And so moving on, after the disciples return from their missions trip, Jesus takes them to a secluded place so that they can rest. Um, but the NHS waiting list find him again, and they follow him. Yet Jesus doesn't turn them away and say, you know, I'm too tired, leave me alone. But he receives and welcomes them. And he preaches to them and he heals them. He gives them his time and attention. And that is the disposition of Jesus. That is the nature of Jesus. That he is never tired of you. He's never tired of your need or of your failings and weaknesses. But he loves to welcome you. That is his nature. And Jesus is preaching and healing for so long that day that disciples begin to worry about the people because they're in a deserted area and there's 5,000 of them. And that's just 5,000 men, which doesn't include women and children. And so when we, you know, we say feeding the 5,000, uh, it's, it's more than that. It, you know, it, it's, it's probably thousands more than that as well. And so they're like, they're worried. The people are going to be hungry. They have nowhere to stay, so on and so forth. And they present that problem to Jesus. And Jesus says, well, okay, you feed them then. And that seems like an odd question or like an odd instruction for Jesus to give them. But I think it fits within the context as an instruction that he gives them. Since a few verses ago, he gave them his power and his authority. But then Jesus takes you know, the little food that they have, and he looks up to heaven and he says a blessing, which, which might have been, you know, the Jewish grace, which is, blessed are you, O Lord our God, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. He might have said that and then would have broken the bread 
And then I imagine in his creative power, as he breaks the bread, he gives it to his disciples, and he keeps on giving, and he keeps on giving, and keeps on giving. And notice that he gives the food, not to the crowd, but he gives it to the disciples, and they give it to the crowd. And thus, he's, he's helped them to do what they asked him, right? Because he said, he said, you feed them. And so they do feed them with what Jesus has given them, which, which shows that he is their source. Again, the same lesson from verses 1 to 6, that Jesus is their source. He provides all that they need. And again, you know, they distribute it until there are 12 baskets left. And that is enough baskets for each of the disciples. It's enough baskets for, for all of Israel, as it were, because of the 12 tribes of Israel. In the next scene, they get a chance to be alone with Jesus, right? The NHS waiting list have, you know, they've been, they've been healed and they've been fed. And so they'll leave Jesus alone for a little bit. And Jesus asked them who everyone says that he is. And Luke repeats the opinions of the crowd in verse 8. John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the old prophets. Now in these opinions, there is something insightful, I think. Um, because in one sense, they're completely right. They don't see Jesus as a new prophet. They think he's an old one, come again. And I think that stems from... Deuteronomy 18 verse 5, where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And Jesus fits that prototype prophet, right? It's a bit like when you meet a child or a teenager, and um, they're just like their parent. Uh, in, in, in speech patterns, in their mannerisms, in their personality, even if their parent isn't there, it's almost like you get a sense that they're, they're, like they're, 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 they're of that kind, they're of that family. And so there is something that they recognize in Jesus as being reflective of the Old Testament prophets. And that's important, again, because in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says, a prophet like me is going to be raised up. And the fact that he will be like Moses, this prophet is going to be like Moses, is significant because it's an indication that God is doing something that is consistent with what he's done in the beginning in order to bring about the end, right? So it's not just that Jesus is kind of copying, reading the scriptures and copying what they're doing, because I'm, I mean, it's not easy to copy miracles, but it's an indication that God is doing something and that it's, it's not just any new God, any random God, it's the same God that's been working from the Old Testament. And so Jesus, all throughout Luke, and even in our scenes, in the scenes that we've been through, looks like a bona fide Old Testament prophet. In the first scene, when he sent out his 12 disciples and puts his power on them, he does exactly what prophet Elijah does. In, in 2 Kings 2, before Elijah is taken up to heaven, Elijah, you know, he parts the River Jordan like Moses parts, um, uh, you know, like Moses parts the Red Sea, and he walks through it on dry ground with his disciple Elisha. And as he's taken up, Elijah puts his power and his authority on Elisha, his disciple, to do exactly as he does. 
And then in that text, he does exactly what he does and walks through the River Jordan and parts it just as Elijah did and then continues Elijah's ministry. When Jesus feeds 5,000 people with, with food almost out of nothing, he parallels Moses and Elijah and Elisha. When Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, they were in the wilderness or in a desolate place, as, in verse, as it says in verse 12, with no food. And God, as if out of nothing, provides bread for them in the wilderness. In 2 Kings 2, Elijah, during the famine, when there is no food, asks a widow to make bread cakes for him out of the last bit of her oil and flour. And she does that for him. But then, out of, it's almost like out of nothing, continuously there is oil and flour for them to make food and, to her to, and for her to continue to keep on making bread so that they can survive. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha, during a, a famine again, he stands in front of 100 people. And a man comes with 20 loaves and a sack of grain and says, I have this food, but it's, it's, it's not enough to feed anyone. It sounds like the disciples, like we've got five loaves and two fish. It, you know, we, we have this, but it's not enough to feed everyone. But then Elijah says, or sorry, Elisha says, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Because the food out of nothing was multiplied. Just as when Jesus feeds the 5,000. And the whole of Luke is full of these parallels between Jesus and the Old Testament prophets. Because as understood by the crowds, Jesus seems to be a climactic appearing of the prophets. But there's more. Jesus at first asks his disciples the general question. Who do the crowds, who, do, who does everyone else say that I am? But then he looks at them directly. There are all these opinions, there are all these views and speculations. But who do you say that I am? And Peter, who kind of represents the whole group, says, You are the Christ of God. And what does that mean? Christ is a title, right? For those of us who, 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 you know, who didn't know, Christ isn't the last name on Jesus' passport, right? Christ is the Greek word, Christos, for the Hebrew word, Mashiach, or Messiah, which means anointed one, or anointed king, right? So when we say Jesus Christ, we're not saying his name like, you might say Denzel Gezi, but you're saying Jesus, the anointed king, when you say Jesus Christ. And anointed is an important word, again, because in the Old Testament, when a person was anointed or smeared with oil by a prophet or a priest, it was to signify that they had been specifically chosen by God for a particular purpose. Right? So King David, he's Israel's greatest king, he is anointed as king. Certain priests and prophets were anointed. They were chosen by God's, um, for God's service. They would have oil smeared on them. But there was still one to come who was a promised, long-awaited, unique one, unlike any other. 
who is anointed to be God's chosen prophet, God's chosen and ultimate priest, and God's chosen and ultimate king, sent into the world to rescue God's people and bring God's kingdom into the world. And so when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ of God, he's, he's saying that Jesus isn't just another prophet, but he is God's savior king. He is the one, right? I, 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 had, to, I had to, I struggled to, to not use a matrix reference, but he is the one this broken world is waiting for. Now in the Jewish mind, the Christ or the Messiah is fundamentally a political figure, right? Because Israel in these times are under the oppression of the Romans. And they're expecting that the Christ is going to be a king or a hero who defeats the Romans, who sets God's people free in kind of a new exodus and makes them a great Jewish kingdom. But Jesus strictly tells them not to say this to anyone. And Jesus almost never uses this title for himself. He never calls himself Messiah, except I think once. Because he's not coming to do what they're expecting him to do. Right? Again, they're, they're you know, kind of expecting a movie-like champion, like in Gladiator. Right? He's going to come and just smash everyone. But Jesus tells them in verse 22, the Son of Man. Again, he doesn't, use, he doesn't say the Messiah. He doesn't use that, that Jewish hero title for himself. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And again, in the Jewish mind, even in our mind, that doesn't make sense, right? Because it's the complete opposite of what we expect from heroes. You know, heroes crush their enemies. They don't get crushed. And what makes it worse is that everyone will reject him. You know in the superhero films when, when, a, when a superhero is going through a particularly you know, testing time, they're going through a difficult challenge, you know, we can look at them as honorable, as respectable, that they're doing a good thing, that they're virtuous. But the rejection that Jesus or the, that the Messiah will experience robs his suffering of any glory or of any respect. You know, they, would, they, you know, they aren't looking at him thinking he's doing a good thing. They, they will look at him and think that he is pathetic. And the most respected people in the Jewish nation will look on him with disgust and they will kill him. That doesn't sound like a hero. but he will rise on the third day. And so the disciples expect glory and honor and respect. And in, in another passage, uh, uh, in, in the other Gospels, you, you, know, you, know, like you see Peter say, after Jesus says these things, he's like, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus has to, in, you know, in one sense, just completely reject what he says and says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter completely misunderstands what the Messiah is or who the Messiah is. Again, they expect glory and honor and respect. But the way of the Messiah is suffering and rejection and death and then glory. The way of the Messiah is death 
and resurrection. And that is what it means to be God's chosen one. And Jesus tells them, if you say I'm God's chosen one and you're going to follow me, this is the exact same road that you have to walk on. But we'll come to that a bit later. At the end of that section, Jesus says in verse 27, some of you will die or will not die until you've seen my glory. And then eight days later, or we see my kingdom, then eight days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain to pray. And as he prays, he is transformed. He is he's transfigured. His face changes. His body and his clothes begin to shine like lightning. When it says dazzling white, it's like the white of lightning. And his glory, his transcendence, his power is unveiled on the mountain. And then all of a sudden, two people appear with him in glory, right? And it's Moses and Elijah. It's the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Moses signifies the law of God. Elijah signifies the prophets who preached to the people to turn back to the law of God. Moses signifies the past, the foundation of Israel, and God's relationship with them, his covenant with them. And Elijah signifies the future and the fulfillment of Old Testament hope. And I mean, these are, you know, Old Testament, they're Old Testament giants. They're, I mean, there's no other figures in the Old Testament that you, can, that, that you can surpass. I mean, you know, Moses parted a whole sea. Uh, Elijah brought down fire from heaven. And he didn't even, like, he didn't even die. He, he was taken up to heaven in chariots of fire. They are the most important prophets in the revelation of God to humanity, to us. And they're standing next to Jesus. But the focus is on Jesus. These Old Testament giants are standing next to Jesus. But Jesus is the ultimate unique one. And their presence only draws attention to Jesus. As not just continuing, but fulfilling, bringing to a climax God's work of redeeming the world. And so they stand together in this glorious scene, and they're speaking. They're, just, they're having a conversation. I, mean, I, can't, I can't imagine them standing in glory just chatting. But what are they speaking about? Verse, 20, verse 31, they're speaking about his departure, his coming death. Right? Jesus, in all of his glory, is having a conversation. And the conversation is about his suffering. And what's interesting about the word departure is that in the Greek, it literally means exodus. They are talking about his exodus, his death, his departure from the world. Jesus' death, his exodus, is the ultimate parallel and fulfillment of the exodus in the Old Testament. When God, through Moses, freed his people, he freed them from slavery in Egypt And that was God's um, singular mighty act in the Old Testament. There is no 
There is no greater event that happens in the Old Testament apart from the Exodus. And Jesus, God's chosen one, in the same way, in a more grand and ultimate way, will free his people from their slavery to fear and sin and death. And while they're talking, the three disciples with him, they wake up from sleep. I'm not sure. They, they, they either might have just been napping or they were knocked out by the glory. I'm not sure. The text isn't clear on that. But they wake up and they see Jesus with all this light, looking like lightning, shining in glory. They see the kingdom of God. And Peter is just like, whoa, he doesn't know, he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know what to say and he's, he's afraid. And he's like, okay, what, what, you know, what do I do? Okay, Lord, let's make three tents. We'll make one for, 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 for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. But his suggestion is wrong. He shouldn't have said that. Because he assumes that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are equals. A bit like the crowds were saying. The crowds were saying Jesus is, he must be another prophet on their level. But Peter is quickly corrected. As Peter is speaking, God covers the, cloud, the, 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 the mountain with a cloud of glory. And they are terrified. And again, this is kind of replaying history. Because this is exactly what happened when God gave the law to Moses. On the mountain, and, and you know, everyone saw it. Everyone saw this cloud coming on the mountain, and they were terrified. But this time, you know, a voice comes from the cloud, and this time it's not the voice of the crowd, and it's not the, the voice of Peter. It's the voice of God Himself. And God quotes from the Old Testament, He quotes from the law and the prophets, and He says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice speaks, Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. And they're left with Jesus only. So that there is no confusion about who is the one, about who is God's chosen one. And so this text is trying to tell us that there is that there is no one else to look for. There is no one else to wait for. There is no other prophet, no other spirit man, no other guru. There is no other enlightened one to wait for. It's Jesus only. God's voice has spoken in no uncertain terms that Jesus is unique and superior above all else. He is the fulfillment He is the climax. He is the perfection of all that God did in the Old Testament. Right? Jesus is distinguished from everyone else and from everything else. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another Moses. He's not just another Elijah. As as big and as huge as they are in in Old Testament terms, as gigantic as they are, they are not in his league. And he's not just superior to them. He is the eternal son of God. Not just a prophet. Not just a servant of God. He is the eternal son of God. 
which is God himself incarnate, God himself in flesh. You know, the Old Testament scripture speaks that when Moses built the tabernacle and when Elijah came, you know, called down fire from heaven, they were means by which the glory of God was shown. But here on this mountain, Jesus Christ himself is the glory of God. The Old Testament scripture speaks and says that Moses is unlike any other prophet because he's, he spoke face to face with God. Here on this mountain, Jesus Christ is the face of God. Moses and Elijah and all the prophets preached to the people, proclaimed to the people, turned back to God, listened to God's voice. Yet here on this mountain, God's voice says, listen to Jesus. And afterward, there was no more speaking. God's voice is the final voice to be heard. You know, it's this kind of a say no more moment, right? The Father has shown us who his chosen one is, the Christ of God. And so what do we do with that? Um, I think there are two important questions for each of us to consider. The first is, who do you say Jesus is? And the second is, will you listen to him and will you follow him? Let's deal with the first question first. Who do you say Jesus is? Um, a bit like the crowds and their opinion, we live in a culture that likes to understand Jesus as another prophet, as a good moral teacher, a good ethical teacher. He's, you know, an enlightened guru. Uh, you know, for many of, <laughs> I'm sure many of us have heard many people thank him at the award shows. He's a free thinker. He's got Christ consciousness. He's a master teacher. You know, he's one of the you know prophets in the religious hall of of fame, like like Buddha or like or like, or like Muhammad. He's just another one. But Jesus doesn't offer us those categories for himself. The Muslims are wrong, the Hindus are wrong, Baha'i faith is wrong, the Gnostics and anyone else who says he's just a prophet or just a guru or just a teacher is wrong. Jesus as just another teacher or just another prophet is not what he claims about himself and it's not what God's word claims about him and it's not what, God, what God's voice claims about him. And we would do well to be honest that if Jesus as the Christ, as God, is something you are uncomfortable with, then do not follow him. But what we cannot do is reshape who he is to make us comfortable. We cannot say that he's, he's, a, good, he's a good teacher, you know. He's a teacher of love. We, we, you know, we can't do that. That's not, the, that's not the category Jesus gives us. You have to take his claims seriously. You have to take him on his own terms, right? Um, Keith Green, uh, um, a Christian singer, I think there's a video going around of him actually. Uh, in an interview in 1978, he said that everyone loves to give Jesus some credit, right? Because they know they can't completely ignore him. 
They like to give him some credit. They'll say he's one of the ways. But the other religions are also one of the ways as well, right? But Jesus' most fundamental claim is that he is the only way to God. No one comes to God except through him, right? And those are not the words of a good moral teacher or just another prophet. He says that no one, not anyone, not one can come to God but through him. There is no other way. There is no other religion or there is no other person or thought system or philosophy by which you can approach God or know God or be accepted by God. Jesus Christ is the only way you can approach God. Jesus Christ is the only truth by which to know God. Jesus Christ is the only life by which we can escape eternal death. Singular, exclusive, he is the only way. And you know, this series is called Jesus, Humanity's Only Hope. You know, why does Jesus, being God's chosen one, why is that the only hope for humanity? Well, let's think about it. Does, do we need another prophet? Is another prophet our answer? Do we, in our broken lives and in this broken world, need another ethical teacher to tell us what to do so we can continue to fail at it? Or do we need God himself to intervene? Do we need just another word from God? Or do we need God himself to come down and sort out our mess? The world needs glory. The world needs the glory of God. The world needs the presence of God. We don't need any more prequels. We don't need any more prophets. We don't need any more gurus or ethical teachers. The world needs a savior. The world needs the Christ of God. The world needs the chosen one. Jesus, as humanity's only hope, is that God has made himself present to us and revealed his glory to us in the Lord Jesus Christ by hanging on the cross and bearing our sins so that we could be forgiven and accepted by God. <clears throat> God has shown to us that he is not untouchable and distant and far away, but God has come near God didn't just send a prophet and stay far from us. God himself has come near. All of our prophets, all of our political commentators, whether left or right, all of our podcasts, all of our news outlets, all of our prophets 
and our earthly wisdom say, ascend to God, climb up the mountain and you will get to God. But we all fail. The true God through his chosen one, he doesn't tell us to ascend to him, to to climb up the mountain to get to him. He descends to us, he comes down to us and brings his glory with him so that there is no more searching, there's no more waiting for the one. Jesus, Jesus Christ, God's chosen one, has come, listen to him. And so who do you say that he is? There is no middle ground. There are only two options. He is either Christ or he is not. He is either Lord or he is not. But there is no middle ground. And if you say that he is the Christ, will you listen to him? Will you follow him? Jesus says in verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Anyone who says, I will follow Jesus, must realize the cost of following him includes suffering and rejection and even death. If I can sum it up, following Jesus is placing faith in Jesus, embracing him as the unique Christ, and daily following what he said, even at cost to yourself. At cost to your desires, your comfort, your relationships, your work. It's living with Jesus as the center of your life, as the indispensable thing in your life. And not just your religious life, but your whole life. And it's a willingness to share and participate in the humiliation and embarrassment and suffering and rejection of being associated and identified with Jesus. Following Jesus means that just as he was willing to go to the cross, to die, to do the will of the Father, you must be willing to follow Jesus to the cross, denying yourself daily of your desires or of any desire or inclination that conflicts with his. Following Jesus isn't living life on autopilot, drifting from day to day, but it's a conscious life and practice of drawing near to Jesus daily, moment by moment, that he might help us deny ourselves of that which he doesn't approve in us, And that he might help us to love and serve our neighbor. It means following Jesus in your work, in your family, 
in your day-to-day, in your relationships, in your entertainment, in your spending. Following Jesus means that we refuse to be our own gods and our own masters and recognize him as the only master. Following Jesus means that the center of your perspective, your day-to-day outlook, is not inward, right? It's not self-love and self-obsession. But the center of your reality is Jesus in absolutely all that you do and in absolutely all that you are. Again, it's easy to say that Jesus is a good moral teacher. And it's easy to say it because it costs nothing. But following Jesus is the willingness to have that pit in your stomach when your Muslim friend or your atheist friend or your friend who is just so much smarter than you look you in your face and say, do you really believe that pathetic man on the cross is God? And for you to say yes and mean it and not run from that shame but owning that shame because Jesus owned shame and hatred for you. Following Jesus, at least most practically in our time, means accepting the ridicule of actually believing Jesus performed miracles and that he rose from the dead and that you actually mean that you believe it. Following Jesus means Enduring that dreadful social awkwardness when you say that you're a Christian and people are bashing Christians. Following Jesus means accepting being called a fool, an extremist, backward, regressive, offensive, homophobic, hateful, intolerant. Because in that moment of truth, when your life or your job or your reputation was at stake, you clung to Jesus and to all that he said, even if it went against everything that our culture accepts and praises, even if it went against all the empirical data that you have, even if it goes against your friendship with someone. Yet while following Jesus means death, just like him, it also means resurrection and glory. And the opposite is true. Not following Jesus might mean that you save your your reputation. It might mean that you save your comfort. It might mean that you save your wealth for a time. But it will end in death. Just as Jesus told his disciples to shake the dust off of their feet in testimony against anyone who rejects Jesus, if you reject Jesus, if you are ashamed to be associated with Jesus because you want to cling to the things of this world and you want your reputation and you want to be liked and you want your wealth and you want your comfort, 
then Christ will reject you. And he will be ashamed to be associated with you. If we will not follow Jesus, we may have glory now, but there will be suffering after because we have rejected the chosen one. We have rejected humanity's only hope. And so Jesus is not just another prophet or moral teacher or a guru. He is the Christ of God, God's son, the chosen one. Listen to him. I end with this. Hebrews 1 verses 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Let's pray. We thank you, our father, that you have sent the chosen one. Help us to follow him and to listen to him. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.